Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Hey everyone, welcome to a live episode of the Elisa Childers podcast. In just a moment, we are going to have a Q&A session with Dr. Vodi Bakum. I know so many of you are excited about this. You've been waiting for it. If you're tuning in on Facebook or YouTube and you'd like to ask a question, you can go ahead and start putting your questions in now. And please write the word QUESTION in all caps so that we are sure to see it. I also want to help, uh, thank David Walcott for moderating uh, today discussion. But without any further ado, I'll bring my guest on, Dr. Vodi Bakum. He's an author and a speaker, a former pastor. He's currently the Dean of Theology at African Christian University in Lusaka, Zambia. Dr. Bakum, welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you on today. Ah, Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, we're excited to talk with you. We have a Facebook group with over 3,000 people in it, and we just finished reading your book called Fault Lines, The Social Justice Movement and Evangelicalism's Looming Catastrophe. And by the way, for the viewers out there, if you want to learn how you can join us in our private Facebook book club group, stay tuned, because after the interview, I'm going to give you some important information on that. Uh, but Dr. Bakum, your, your book is called Fault Lines, and that provides the analogy for the whole book. And I wonder if you can quickly set that up for us. Why did you choose that title, and why do you think that that is such a relevant analogy for discussions surrounding racism and social justice and, and critical theory? Well, I grew up in, in Los Angeles, California, on a fault line, and experienced a couple of earthquakes in, in my day. And as I looked out and thought about what was happening, and as I watched these divisions taking place, um, that imagery uh, just sort of stayed with me. The idea that we are on a fault line, that it's shifting, and that there are people who are going to find themselves on the wrong side of this divide when the catastrophe strikes. Uh, Not if, but when the catastrophe strikes. 
So because that sort of, you know, stayed with me, uh, I found it as a helpful tool in communicating to people what I was seeing in terms of what's going on. So in your book, you write about growing up in South Central Los Angeles, and specifically you wrote about your mom. I really loved reading what you wrote about your mom and her role in shaping you as a person. And I'd like to read yeah, a quote Yeah, most, from... most people do. Yes. Most people do. We're, we're the here for it. The hero of the book apparently is my mom. <laughs> so many people, when they've read the book, they go, I love your mom. I want to meet your mom. We all fell in love with your mom reading this book, for sure. And I'd like to read a quote from the book and then ask you a little bit about your backstory. So in your book, you write, I grew up poor, without a father, and surrounded by drugs, gangs, violence, and dysfunction in one of the toughest urban environments imaginable. Yet through all of that, I didn't just survive, I thrived, not because of government programs or white people doing the work of anti-racism. I thrived in large part because by God's grace, my mother protected me, sacrificed for me, advocated for me, and disciplined me. So I wonder if you can share a little bit about your mom, about your backstory, but also walk us through how you came to faith in Christ. Yeah, so my mother and my father, they were, you know, children uh, of the 60s. I was born in 1969. Uh, my mother was in high school um, when she got pregnant with me. And um, my parents ended up uh, getting married because that was you know, what you did during that time. But they didn't stay married very long. So um, I was raised uh, by my mother as a single mother, uh, a single teenage Buddhist mother. <laughs> mm. And the first time I heard the gospel was in college. I was in university uh, before I ever really heard the gospel. And it was really there that I came face to face with the fact that I was a sinner. Um, I was always, you know, because of the way that my mother raised me, you know, I was that kid that, you know, other kids' parents wanted them to be like. Um, and so I, I never thought that I needed anything. And here comes this Campus Crusade staffer um, talking to me about uh, Jesus and the gospel and talking to me about my need for a savior. And when we first started talking, I didn't, I didn't really even have enough of a foundation to be able to follow what he was communicating to me. Um, and so we just sort of slowed everything down and went back to the basics and spent two and a half or three weeks with him um, answering my questions and eventually showing me how to find answers to my questions about God and about the scriptures until I, I eventually didn't have any more questions. And um, one day we were supposed to meet and he was late and I, I just laid down on the floor. I was in the locker room uh, and I just said, you know, God, that thing you did for Steve that he's been telling me you want to do for me, um, now's good. <laughs> I, I just trusted Christ to save me. Um, I didn't have the fancy words to say or whatever, um, but I, I came to repentance and faith uh, there on the floor in the locker room. Oops, I muted myself. That's a beautiful story, and I loved reading about that in your book. In, in the description for Fault Lines, it says this, but what if there is more to the social justice movement than Christians understand? Or even worse, what if they've been duped into preaching ideas 
that actually oppose the kingdom of God. I wonder if you could expound on that a little bit, because I know that this has been a very confusing year for a lot of Christians uh, with everything that's been happening in culture. How do you see Christians being duped into some of these anti-gospel ideas? Well, let me just say that as early as 2004, 2005, um, I I was talking and preaching and and writing about um, really neo-Marxism, Gramscian Marxism, um, talking about this guy Gramscian, people sort of looked at me and crossed their eyes. Um, So I've been worried about this for a long time. I've been worried about this um, as it relates to education and government education. And again, people sort of look at me cross-eyed about that. This movement, this current movement, the, the critical social justice movement is really built upon those same ideas and frameworks. This is just another iteration. Um, this is just another advancement of that same ideology. So this is not something that I just started thinking about um, a, a few months ago. This is something that I've been thinking about for a long time and warning about for a long time. And these ideas are poisonous ideas. And when I say that people are being duped, what I'm saying is that that people are using um, phrases like social justice, for example, that sound really good. Um, Racial justice. I mean, that, that just sounds really good. We're all for justice, right? And equity and, you know, diversity and so on and so forth. And we don't understand that these words, these phrases, anti-racism, right? We don't understand that they're part of an ideology. And beyond that, we don't understand that these words are really designed in such a way that they are meant to dupe and to confuse. Mm. And a lot of people are falling prey to them. Yes. And in your book, you talk about it being more of a worldview. And I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit for us. Explain to us how the current iteration of the social justice movement sort of takes on that religious tone of having a worldview that's really antithetical to the gospel. Yeah, it it comes from this this neo-Marxist ideology, this neo-Marxist worldview. These, These basic overarching assumptions about the way the world is structured and organized, about the way that relationships between people are structured and organized, these power dynamics, if you will. Um, Everybody's familiar by now with this oppressor-oppressed paradigm, right? And they may not know Gramsci's idea of hegemony, but they get this idea that there is this, you know, cultural hegemony that the oppressor uses um, as a tool to oppress uh, people. And in, in our environment, uh, that hegemonic tool is, is whiteness, um, which broadly refers to more than just people with, with, with white skin, if you will, but white, male, heterosexual, cisgendered, able-bodied, native, you know, native-born, um, all the way down to Christian, right? Christianity is part of this sort of, you know, hegemonic power as well. And the the terminology that is used, for example, there's this talk about America's original sin, right? Original sin, this is religious language, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, 
and this need for redemption and for reconciliation. And people are talking about Bible verses and, you know, b- biblical concepts. And, you know, they're, they're, they're using biblical stories. And when I say people, I'm talking about not just within the church, but even outside of the church. People are talking about things like the Good Samaritan and, you know, and, 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 and you know, the, the tax collector and all this sort of stuff. They're using these stories and these ideas in order to communicate what it is that we need to be about in this work of anti-racism. This work of anti-racism is a religious work. It is a work that doesn't end. It's penance, right? Mm. It, it's, not, it's not repentance because it never ends. You never finish doing the work of anti-racism. And the, the terminology is religious, but it's very different in that it moves away from the heart of the individual towards structures. So now we don't talk about racism, we talk about systemic racism. We talk about structural racism. And the work of anti-racism has nothing to do with individual hearts and everything to do with systems and structures. And so it's political in nature and it's oriented toward power. Mm. Well, in a moment, we're going to get to our questions, uh, but I wanted to just ask you something kind of specific. So I think one of the things that's been the most confusing for Christians trying to navigate these waters, especially in the last year, maybe two years, is that there are Christian leaders, and you talk about some of these leaders in your book, who... You know they're 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 affirming all of the gospel essentials, right? They're they're good on the atonement of Jesus, the second coming, all of these things, the need for salvation, uh, grace, all of this, and yet they might even come out and say, "Well, I officially denounce critical race theory. We, we don't use that." But then it seems like they're using some of the categories. And um, I, I just, you know, one of the people you mentioned in your book is, is Tim Keller. And I, you know, I've been a big fan of Tim Keller's in the mm-hmm. past. I've quoted him in my book. I think he brings a lot of valuable discussions, but he's, he kind of represents, I think, that group that's been a little bit confusing on this issue. I wonder if you had any comments on that. Yeah, it's interesting. What's happening now is people are saying one of a, a few things. One they're saying that, you know, CRT is not a real issue, right? You'll hear about the CRT boogeyman, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing is people will say that, you know, nobody's teaching CRT, right? Um, And then you'll hear people say things like, I don't agree with CRT. But then those same people will talk about ideas that are derived from critical race theory, the primary assumptions of critical race theory. And so you hear them talking about the idea, for example, that that racism is normal, that racism is structural and systemic. Um, You know, this idea of convergence, interest convergence theory, right? Um, The idea that the way that we uh, deal with this is by elevating minority voices, Um, again, because narrative is the way that we we find truth the idea that you know even that 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 knowledge is socially constructed and things of this nature and so what they're doing is imagine if somebody said listen i reject hinduism right i really reject hinduism but i really do feel like 
we need to do a better job of being aware of karma and reincarnation, um, you know, because these things are real and these things are important. That's what people are doing now. Mm -hmm. They're using the categories and the language of CRT all the while saying that they that they don't believe CRT, that they don't buy into CRT. And what they're doing is they're redefining critical race theory and critical race theorists. And they're saying, for example, that this is just, you know, an obscure ideology that you only find in law schools, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or, or on the other hand, you have people who are saying, no, 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 CRT is just about um, having honest discussions about America's past racial sins, um, as as though you know those discussions haven't happened or can't happen without CRT. Yeah. Um, so that's why it ends up sounding confusing, uh, because people are really communicating the ideas that are inherent to critical race theory, to critical theory, more critical theory is more broad, right? Critical race theory is a subset of, of critical theory. So they use these categories. They use the oppressor oppressed, you know, uh, paradigm, for example. Um, and what they'll do is they'll go to scripture and they'll say, well, well, the Bible talks about oppression, mm-hmm. um, which it that's, it's just wicked, right? Because the Bible absolutely talks about oppression, but the Bible doesn't teach that the way we understand the world is by looking at everything through the lens of an oppressor-oppressed paradigm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that that's why it ends up being confusing. And so people start talking about things like, I'll give you a classic one, racial justice. What in the world? I mean, I'm not sure, but most people hear that and they go, I'm not sure what it is, but I think I'm probably for it. Right. Right. I mean, I don't think as a Christian that I would be for racial injustice. So sure, racial justice. But when people say racial justice, what they mean is disparities are proof of discrimination. Right. Right. That because you can through the oppressor oppressed paradigm, when you see disparities, you assume that those disparities disparities exist because of oppression and you don't look for another cause for those disparities you merely go after the racist systems that are inevitably the cause of those disparities that's what people mean when they say racial justice and that's crt 101 Mm. So what's your practical advice to Christians who are trying to navigate through those types of discussions that they're having with people in their churches, even their pastors and friends? When words and phrases like that get brought up, what's the best way to go about bringing clarity into that discussion? Asking people what they mean, you know. Uh, First, educate yourself. You know, one of the reasons that I I wrote this book, I didn't write this book because I wanted to. Um, I wrote this book because I felt like I had to. I felt like I needed to. Um, you know, nobody needs this grief <laughs> right? in their life. Yeah. Uh, this is one of those books that you know, as soon as it hits the presses, um, there's a fault line, right? And mm-hmm. there are people who are going to fall on either side of it. And there are some people who are going to dismiss it before they turn the first page. Um, you know, so you, you know that this is going to happen. But if we're going to get through this, um, we need to understand 
terminology, terminology and ideology so that we can have conversations where we press one another and we say, okay, when you say that, what do you mean, right? Because social justice has a very clear meaning. Social justice is redistributive justice, right? Mm -hmm. Social justice is about equal outcomes, and the redistribution of wealth and the redistribution of, you know, privileges and opportunities or whatever, so that we get equitable, not equal, right? Equality is about equal opportunity. Equity is about equal outcome. So that's what that word means. Well, most people, you know, Christians who are talking about, you know, social justice, they would say, no, 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 no. that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I mean. And so then... What I'm saying to people is, okay, find a better word then. Mm -hmm. Stop using that word because it means something, right? Stop using racial justice because racial justice and racial injustice, that means something. You know, so what I want is for people to be able to, you know, use this book in order to understand the lay of the land to understand where these ideas are coming from and whom these ideas are coming from and be able to have conversations where we make sure that we're on the same page. Sometimes what that's going to lead to is a conversation where people say, no, that's actually not what I mean. Sometimes it's going to lead to conversations where people say, well, I didn't think that's what I meant, but maybe it is what I mean. Right. Mm. And then we can we can we can take it from there. But we've got to clarify. That's good. Uh, That leads me to a question here from Cindy. She's asking, how do I as a white person approach engaging with people of color in this discussion without being offensive? Yeah, you can't do that. You can't even think about it like that. You've already lost because Mm. you've already assumed that because of the level of melanin that you have, right? That somehow you automatically carry the burden of somebody else's offense. And that's that's just not true. That's wrong, right? Um, when we have relationships with people, we have authentic relationships with people. And if I can't say something to you, um, we, without you assuming the worst and taking offense and then shutting down, then we didn't really have a relationship to begin with. And my problem is not a a problem with melanin, right? There's a deeper problem there. Um, And so I I think what we need to do is we we need to take a step back and really examine our relationships and whether or not our relationships are authentic. And I think what a lot of people are admitting is that they don't have authentic relationships and and that there isn't trust there. Mm. Um, And and there's no way forward when that's where we're starting. Yeah. Uh, Next question is coming from Allison, and she wants to know, what are some cautions in not swinging too far in the opposite direction against critical social justice. And I suppose what she might even be implying here is that, you know, there tends to be sort of these extremes we see where you'll have one group that any discussions on racism or uh, anything like that, they just get labeled, oh, that's critical theory or that's Marxism. And then you kind of have extremes on the other side too. 
what what would your See, advice I, be? I don't think I don't think that's true. Okay. I, I I'm just not seeing that. I, I hear that all the time from people when they're when they're when they're doing their presentations. They'll say on the one on the one side you have the people where any discussion about race or racism and you get labeled as critical race. Well, that's not true. I talk about race and racism. You go look up my sermon on Genesis chapter 10, where I'm tracing the history of race and racism. Nobody ever accused me of being a Marxist. Why? Because I rail against Marxism and because I was using biblical categories. So I, that's just not happening. That That's that's really, that that's a straw man that's okay. being set up. Yeah. And and so I'm I'm not I don't know anybody and nobody has ever shown me evidence of anyone who says any discussion about race and you 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 that's Marxism. Um, Owen Strahan has a new book, uh, Christianity and Wokeness. And he starts off in Christianity and Wokeness and you can hear a sermon on Christianity and Wokeness and he says, "Listen, wokeness is not Boom, 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 right? And he goes mm -hmm. through just being concerned about you know, race, being concerned about justice, being concerned. That's not what we're talking about here. And so I think one of the things we have to do is, you know, in, in sort of a, a, a avoiding any kind of wild swings is to make sure that we're talking about scripture, to make sure that we're interpreting the word of God and the other thing that we need to do is not let people rent space inside our heads, right? Mm. Because what people are trying to do is they're trying to make us sort of blunt the force of our arguments by having them die the death of a thousand qualifications. Mm. And so, listen, if somebody is going to dismiss me, and say that, you know, I'm just this, you know, extremist, whatever. I, I, listen, I'm sorry, you don't know me. Either you don't know me or you're being dishonest about me. Um, and that's just the bottom line. And so I am not worried about, you know, these, 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 these wild extremes because I'm railing against an extreme. Critical race theory, critical social justice is an extreme, right? Yeah. And, and what I'm doing is I'm not arguing anything about, you know, other directions or maybe, no, no, no. I'm saying this is evil. I'm saying this is wicked. I'm saying this is at war with the gospel. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm taking every thought captive. I'm destroying arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God, right? Now, that may look like something that's extreme because we're at war, right? Ideological warfare is extreme, but it's a necessary extreme. Yeah. You can't fight against something, you know, without that kind of extreme. So, so don't be afraid of that. And, and don't let people back you into a corner, you know, by making you somehow so afraid of making forceful stands when forceful stands are required. And that's what's required in this instance. Mm, that's good stuff. Uh, this is a question from Brian. He says, I'm half black and Puerto Rican. Sometimes I feel that I'm on the wrong side 
being a man of color in terms of CRT? What strengthens you most while others uh, see you as an Uncle Tom or something like that? Oh, boy. A couple of things. One is time, you know. Um, you know, there, there's, there's this phrase in, in, in weightlifting, time under tension, right? Um, and, and time under tension builds strength. And something happens when you, when you walk through a situation where you take a stand and then people take shots at you, shots at you. Mm. And you, and you turn around and you realize two things. Number one, I'm okay. And number two, they didn't answer my argument. They just called me a name. Right? Yeah. The, I I I know what that means. Right? Right. What that means is they don't have an argument. And so, you know, I couldn't care less about people, you know, calling me names. Um that that that's 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 not what what concerns me you know i've got i got bigger concerns than that and whatever the worst thing is that you can say about me um if you knew me if you really knew me you'd probably realize that there's worse things to be said about me than that it's <laughs> good <laughs> Uh, we have several questions from people who have uh, biracial children or adopted children. Of course, I don't. I probably don't even like the phrase biracial because we're one race, but we know what what they mean by that. Um, so here's one from Kristen. I prefer, says, I prefer by ethnic. By ethnic, that's good. Yeah, uh, Kristen is asking as white parents of a biracial, bi ethnic child. What should we be teaching him about his race and his ethnicity? I was told that I can't, quote unquote, teach him how to be black um, and I have to get him around as many people of color as possible. Just to be as kind and gentle as I can. That's kind of racist. That's kind of assuming this racial essentialism. That's kind of assuming that black people are alike and that all you have to do is find a black person. And if you get your child to a black person, then they're going to get the black experience as if there is such a thing. Um, there is no such thing as the black experience. And when you're talking about bi-ethnic children, um, again, what is the by ethnic experience. There is no such thing. And when we're raising children, there are so many other things to be worried about than that, right? I mean, we're trying to raise children who run hard after God. We're trying to raise children who understand who they are in Christ. We're trying to raise children who, regardless of, you know, the other assumption is that somehow, you know, Black families who are raising black children um, don't have children who have identity crises when they get to their teen years, right? Um, you know, I don't know about you, but everybody I know, regardless of by whom they were raised, at some point in their life came to a crisis where they looked at themselves and they looked at their family and said, you know what? I might not even be one of them. 
Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's just part of life. That's part of growing up where you have to discover who you are apart from the people who raised you. The other reality is nobody is a carbon copy of or, you know, an an absolute representation of the people who raised them. We are individuals. And somehow, you know, when when parents bring children into their home, and I'm an adopted father, right? Um, We have seven of our nine children who came into our family by way of adoption. Um, I'm a father of, uh, of a bi-ethnic child, right? And so, you know, I, I understand a little bit about, <laughs> you know, this, this, this topic. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the fact is that we all go through that. And the fact is that when people end up, you know, in an adoption situation or in a sort of multi-ethnic situation, they just kind of lose their minds and start believing things that if you just close your eyes and took 15 seconds to think about it would sound totally absurd. Yeah. Uh, Emily wants to know, are we headed for massive church splits over CRT? Are we headed toward massive persecution of believers in the U S what do you think about that? Um, no, and maybe. Are we headed toward massive church splits? No, we're already seeing massive church splits. We're not heading there. We are there. Um, are we headed toward persecution of Christians um, in, in the U.S.? Um, maybe. Uh, maybe. Um, you know, as you, I don't know if you've, you've said, you know, I'm serving here in Lusaka, Zambia, um, hence our connection and delays or whatever. Um, but being an American expat, um, living in a different part of the world, um, it, it, it gives me an interesting perspective on, uh, you know, what it means to be American and um, what America is and, and what America has been and what America is capable of. And um, it, is it possible? Yes, um, it's possible. But if it, if it does come and if it does happen, um, it won't be unique in church history. It won't be unique in right. world history. And God's bigger than that, right? Yeah. Um, to, to me, I'm not worried about whether Christians are going to be persecuted in America. I'm worried about Christians who think that somehow that would mean that the wheels have fallen off and that the kingdom's in danger. Mm. That's good. And and one of the things that was so fascinating in your book was that comparison you made of what you see even regarding police and the way that, that things just are culturally in Zambia versus the United States. And then when you hear people in the United States saying things about the way they are here, it was like, uh, I don't know. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? And just for anyone who hasn't read your book, just that was such a <laughs> that was such an eye-opening uh, thing to read there. Yeah, and this is one of the things that really motivated me to just go ahead and write the book. Um, Our students here at ACU um, began to ask me questions about whether I felt safe in America and, you know, about the police. And now this is in a country where, you know, the police set up these, you know, roadblocks, road stops, and, you know, you, you, you pull up and they 
look for violations and if they find a violation they pull you over on the side of the road where you have to pay your fine in cash um you know this is a place where professional policing isn't a thing if somebody comes and breaks in my house right now i can't call 911 if i need to go and get the police they're going to want me to pay them a bribe for them to even come and 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 do something about whatever is going on um you know you get caught stealing here you can count on a beating from the police. Hmm. You get caught filming the police while they're beating somebody, you can count on losing your phone and maybe getting a beating just like the person who's getting a beating from the police. And so when people here started asking me about whether or not I was worried about the police in America, I, I just, that was it. I mean, that was the moment where I said, this is a bridge too far. Um, it, I gotta do this. I, I gotta write this now. Yeah. One of the... I mean, even before all this happened, we've been here, I'm sorry, we've been here for uh, six years uh, as of next month, right? And I remember after maybe the second year, I flew into the U.S. because I come to the U.S. three or four times a year for a speaking tour. And I, I flew in and I don't remember what airport it was that I landed in. I think it may have been work. And there were three police officers from three different um jurisdictions i think there was an airport cop a city cop and you know somebody else and they were there having a conversation and i'm about to go out and meet the person who's going to pick me up and i just felt compelled i just walked over to them i said Man, i just want to shake your hand i just want to thank you you know for what you do i live in a country where professional policing is just absolutely non-existent and i'm grateful hmm. for men like you who do what you do and lay it on the line. And, and I mean, they got choked up, mm. you know, they literally got yeah. choked up. Um, but I, I, again, th this is one of the reasons that people complain about America, but nobody's trying to leave because we know better. Yeah, that's good. Uh, one of the criticisms I see on, tw especially Twitter, tw and Twitter's sort of the bottom of the barrel. It's kind of the <laughs> cesspool of social media. I stay away. Oh, I know. I, I actually, I'm not even I'm, on Twitter I'm not anymore. Sanctified but enough. Oh my gosh. I'm not sanctified enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually deleted my Twitter page because I was just like, I don't, yeah. people don't need this access to me all the time to say all these things yeah. to me all the time. But sometimes I'll go on there and search certain words and see what, what yeah. people are saying. One of the criticisms I see, especially on Twitter, is, and this is kind of something I saw this week, where people will say, everybody who is railing against critical race theory, of all those people, nobody can define it. If you ask them what it is, they can't even tell you what it is. And so this is sort of leading into a question here from Emily. <laughs> She says, how would you boil CRT down in layman's terms? Like if, how do I help my kids understand? How would I maybe explain it, if possible, in a minute, what it is and why it's dangerous? If somebody says, well, can you even define what it is? Can you help us with language on that? Yeah, well, there's a broader definition, you know, in the book, obviously. But if I'm talking to, you know, a layman, I'm talking to a young person, critical race theory is an ideology that was born out of critical legal studies that comes from critical theory. It's based on the presupposition that racism is the defining characteristic and the defining reality of American culture and that all things 
are to be understood through that lens. Um, now, there's a broader definition. I, I gave you some of those main pillars. There are really four main pillars of CRT. Um, you know, the idea that racism is normal. Interest convergence theory is the idea that white people are incapable of righteous actions in the area of race unless their interests converge with people of color. Um, and, you know, then there's this sort of anti-liberalism that rejects um, things like objective truth, meritocracy, so on and so forth, because they believe that those are constructed from the hegemony. And then that leads to this fourth premise, which is this idea that we find truth through narrative. Um, and so I, I understand what CRT is. I can define CRT. I define CRT in my book. I'm not the only one who is able to define critical race theory. Um, there are a lot of people out there defining critical race theory and anybody who's, and I've, I've seen some of the same stuff, right? Everybody's railing against it, but nobody can define it. Um, and in some of those feeds, you have people who give a definition, but it just doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. Um, because that's a dodge, you know? Um, but, but yeah, critical race theory is definable. Um, there is an entire literature out there, uh, um, on critical race theory from critical race theorists. Yeah, that's good. And and here's a, an interesting question that um, I'd love to get your thoughts on. This is from Mary Beth. She says, in the midst of all of this, what does, or of what does, of what does, sorry, the broad evangelical church need to repent? So I think she's asking, is there anything the broad evangelical church does need to repent for? Because you see that no. a lot. People will say, you know, the church needs to repent. We all need to repent. And so do you, do no. you just reject that altogether? Or what would your thoughts yeah. be on that? No, because, I mean, sinners need to repent, right? Yeah. Sinners need to repent. And not, not broad evangelicalism, right? Broad evangelicalism. How do you even, how, how do you even, you know, look at that categorically? You know, no sinners need to repent, um, and, and and there may be collective people, collective groups that 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 need to repent. Um, the Southern Baptist Convention has dealt with this, for example, um, with its history and its founding, and you know things of that nature. Um, and so, yeah, there was there was repentance there from you know from 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 that particular group. But even that was symbolic, because the people who did that were dead, right? They're 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 gone. Yeah. And the people to whom they did that were dead. They were they were gone. Um, so no, no, absolutely not. Uh, here's another question from somebody who has an adopted uh, son from Ethiopia. Uh, she says, my husband and I are white, and I've had people tell my son that we were colonizing him by adopting him. Could could Vodi speak to this? Um, what what advice would you give to these parents about what to how to talk to their son and how to navigate that sort of sticky situation? Yeah, well... <laughs> yeah. So remember when I talked about not being sanctified enough for Twitter? Um, I'm, I'm almost not sanctified enough for people who will look at a child who has had the privilege of being adopted 
and look at a family that has made the immense sacrifice of adopting and have anything to say to that child. That's not your business. You have no idea who these people are. You have no idea what these people's intentions are. And the other thing is this, again, that's this sort of racial and ethnic and now national essentialism going on here again. It, what's funny about that is some of these same people are the ones who want America to open up its borders so that everybody can leave their nation and come to America. Well, which is it? Do we believe that everybody needs to stay in their nation and with their ethnicity and not have any mixing and mingling so that everybody can hold on to the purity, right? What, what that means today, you know? Yeah. Or, or do we believe that 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 people do move, that by God's providence, people do end up in other places and circumstances. By God's providence, I ended up, because of slavery, I ended up being having the privilege of being raised in the center of the universe, in the greatest republic in the history of the world, in the place where people all over the world will give everything in order to be there. I carry the magic passport, right? because of this horrible reality that my ancestors went through. So again, anybody who's saying that, they don't understand the providence of God. They don't understand you know, the privilege of, of adoption. Um, yeah, that, anyway, yeah. why'd you get me started on that? I why, know. why, why? I know, it's, it's, <laughs> you know, I think it's so heartbreaking though. Oh. It's so heartbreaking to see how this is affecting people in their families, in their in their everyday lives, and even coming between parents and children, yeah. it's it's really heartbreaking. Yeah. And uh, this, and I, kind of, I write about that also in the book. I write yeah. about that also. I think in chapter nine, where I talk about this sort of adoption issue, and there is this phenomenon. The reason that we adopted seven children is not because we went looking to adopt seven times. We went looking to adopt one time, and then after that, adoption agencies were calling us. Because most adoption agencies, if a, if a black birth mother says that she wants to place her child with a black family, the overwhelming majority of adoption agencies don't have one. There's not one available. J just let that sink in for a moment. Yeah. And so here are people who step in where they are needed, right? Where in many instances, there wasn't a black family available and then some family that didn't put their lives on the line has the audacity to be offended by the fact that that family did what needed to be done. Mm. I, I just, I have very little patience for that. Yeah, that's good. Uh, Lynn wants to know, uh, she says, I'm starting to see posts from Christians saying things like, uh, CRT isn't all true, but it's not all bad. Don't overreact. Just like not everything is racism, not everything is CRT. You can't throw all of it out. So how can we as Christians respond to people who are saying that that what we're talking about in this live stream today is an overreaction, or like the boogeyman, as you put it? Yeah, here's what I don't ever see. I don't ever see the elements of CRT 
that are good, number one, being presented and being presented honestly. Usually people will say something like, yeah, we do need to focus on, you know, have an honest discussion about race. Okay. You, you, you haven't, how is that CRT, right? Because CRT is not an honest discussion about race. The, the underlying premises of CRT are ruined from the word go, mm-hmm. right? So that's the first problem. The second problem is you have to show me where CRT is contributing something that we don't have in the scriptures. That's good. That we don't have in a better way in the scriptures. What we, because now you're arguing against the sufficiency of scripture. So, no, CRT, even if you're just talking about um, in the social sciences, let's let's just get away from the, the, the sufficiency of scripture for a moment, and let's just talk about in the social sciences. Even in the social sciences, CRT is useless. In the social sciences, CRT is ruined from the word go. It's not making any contributions that are absolutely beneficial and necessary from the word go because its underlying presuppositions are bankrupt. So even if we just go there, not to mention if we come into, you know, Bible country (laughs) and start talking about what the Bible has to say about, you know, race, ethnicity, um, you know, sin, salvation, reconciliation, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, that that's not pe- – people say that because it sounds good. What they're trying to do is, you know, to set the equivalency, you know. Mm-hmm. They're, they're trying to have this sort of third way, you know. And, and, and a lot of the books that are coming out about this are these sort of, you know, weak, limp-wristed, mealy-mouthed, third way books, right? These guys are bad over here and these guys are bad over here. Um, but I'm balanced, you know? Yeah. And and what bal- what balanced means is I accept the assumptions of CRT, but I use the word gospel a lot. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I I was actually talking with someone the other day about the word balance. Like everybody thinks that's such a good goal. Like I want to be balanced. Well, sometimes you want to be balanced, but there are some things you don't want to be balanced in. You don't want to be balanced when it comes to murder. You want to be against murder, right? You know, it's like you don't want to try to find some middle ground. Um, Here's a question from YouTube. uh, And I think this is this is the question so many people are wanting to know. Should we stop listening to pastors who support CRT? And I'll even add to that question and say, when is it time to sort of maybe stop listening to a pastor who maybe even rejects CRT officially, but still sort of um, uses the categories and employs the language, has that third kind of way? When is it time to just to stop listening to them on other things? Or do you think that you can separate them? What would your advice be? Yeah, two things. Number one, fight for your relationship with your pastor. And number two, stop calling people who are not your pastor, your pastor. The guy you listen to online because you like his style, that's not your pastor. That's number one. Number two, if you don't have a real pastor, somebody who's shepherding your soul, get one and have a real relationship with that person. 
Because if you have a real relationship with that person, then you fight for that relationship. You go sit down face to face with that person. And it's not until you recognize in that face to face conversation that there's something heretical being pushed here that you make such a drastic decision. But I think one of the reasons that we wrestle with, you know, when do I stop listening is that we don't have real relationships with real pastors. And so we, we call a guy, our pastor that we watch on a screen and, and he's not, um, if you just watch somebody on a screen and, you know, they start going in the wrong directions, watch somebody else on the screen, right? Um, that, that's not, that, that's not costly. Um, but if you have somebody who really is your shepherd, then you fight for that relationship with everything you got. That's good. Jamie wants to know, in your book, you say that the division CRT is causing in the church is necessary. Can you explain that? Yeah. It, because this is one of those arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. And we are to destroy arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. So it's necessary that this division comes. If there are people in the church who are identifying themselves as Christian, or even if they're not identifying themselves as Christian, um, when ideologies like this are being presented, just again, if somebody's talking about Vishnu and Krishna and, you know, Shiva and karma and reincarnation, what do you do? If somebody brings that into your church, you, you identify that as something that's a threat to the gospel. That is another gospel. Um, and, and so it's necessary at that point that we have division between us and that other gospel. This is no different. That's good. We have time uh, for a couple more here. This is from Lauren. She's asking, do you have friends and or family that are uh, cri critical social justice warriors that you dialogue with? Anything you've learned from them or f about the movement in conversations? Um, do I? Yes. I mean, I've got people all around me who I know and whom I love. And, you know, one of the things that I try to communicate in the book but people don't seem to um, realize or appreciate is that a number of the people that I name in the book are friends, mentors, heroes of mine. Um, and I, I can still, <laughs> I still consider um, these people friends. Um, and, and if you have a problem with that, then you don't understand friendship, you know, um, and so, yeah, I do have people who think differently about this. I have had, you know, many interactions with people who think differently about this. And over the years, um, that has really helped me to sort of hone the way that I speak about this um, and, and come to a place where um, I, I feel more comfortable and confident with the positions that I've taken and come to a place where I realize where I need to press and where I don't. That's good. Well, we'll do a final question here. This is from YouTube from Nathaniel. Uh, he wants to know, as a student 
at Christian University that's embracing CRT, which, mm. boy, that, that's happening everywhere. So mm. many college students are mm. facing this. Uh, he's asking, what should we as students do to combat it? Yeah, that's a difficult one because you're paying these people to be your teachers. Mm. Um, and and so on, on the one hand, there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance that goes on. And, you know, we do this. There's a message that I've often done at, at homeschool conferences, and the title is Harvard or Heaven, right? Like, what are we preparing our children for? And the cognitive dissonance that takes place is when we say, on the one hand, I want to send my child to be mentored and discipled and taught by these people. And then on the other hand, we say, I don't want my child to come away from these people with the ideology that they're pushing. But, I, but I'm paying money for these people to give my child that ideology. Um, or if I'm a student, right, I'm, I'm paying for these people to give me this ideology. Um, I mean, sometimes we do that. Um, I, you know, I've, I've done that um, myself. But if you do it, be honest about what you're doing. Be honest about the fact that you're in enemy territory, that there's something that you need and you're there to get. Get that and get out. But you're not there to fix the institution, right? Mm -hmm. you, you're not paying, you know, tens of thousands of dollars so that you can fix an institution. And if you are, um, you, you're not smart enough to be in college. Yeah, that's, that's good. Uh, any final words you'd leave us with, uh, with the people who have just read through your book and have been so helped by it? What what uh, final words would you like to leave us with today? Well, first of all, thank you. Um, I, I'm really encouraged. I've been overwhelmed by the response to the book, by the number of people who have purchased the book. Um, I just, yeah, been been amazed and overwhelmed by that. And I'm grateful for people who are reading it and who are recommending it and being helped by it. Um, and so just know that um, I, I want this to be a tool for you because um, I want you to be helped in this because I believe that this is something worth fighting for. Um, I believe that the bride of Christ is beautiful and glorious and prized and precious uh, to our Savior who died to redeem her. And because of that, um, we, need, we need to fight for her. We need to defend her. We need to protect her. Um, and that's the other thing that really worries me about a lot of the language. You asked me the question about, you know, what evangelicalism needs to repent of. It's amazing to be how people are blaspheming the bride of Christ today. Mm. You listen to some people and they talk about the bride of Christ as though she's the whore of Babylon, not as though she is the precious blood-bought bride of Christ whom he died to redeem and is going to, you know, return to, to, to take unto himself. And I think we need to, I think we need to think about the church in that way. And so my hope is that I've helped people uh, to do that. 
Well, indeed you have, and that's uh, such a strong and beautiful word, and we're just so grateful that you joined us for this time today. For everybody watching, we're going to say goodbye to Dr. Bauckham right now, but stay tuned because I've got some announcements. But uh, Dr. Bauckham, thank you. God bless you, and you have a great day. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, you are most welcome. It's been my pleasure. All right. We'll talk to you soon. All right, everybody. So I promised to give you some information about how to join our Facebook book club. So this is a, uh, a private Facebook book club. And every time we do a new book, we open up the group for new members and then we close it. And the reason we do that is because we want to sort of read through the book together and not have people joining us in the middle of a book or, or something like that. So right after this live stream, the book club uh, book, uh, group, I guess it is, group will open back up for new members. And we'll leave that open for uh, a few weeks so that new people can join us for our next uh, book study. And if you want to join the book club group, wait till after this live stream and you can go to facebook.com slash groups slash Alisa Childers Book Club. So that's facebook.com slash groups slash Alisa Childers Book Club. And we're going to open that back up. This is very important. You will have to agree to a belief statement and the group rules in order to be allowed into the group. Uh, it, it's just we like to keep a, a group of like-minded people who are pursuing Jesus and wanting to, to learn more about our worldview, why we believe what we believe. So that's why we have that belief statement. It's a very general, basic Christian uh, belief statement. And we also have some group rules that you have to agree to. So you must agree to both of those things in order to be let into the group. Again, that's facebook.com slash groups slash Elisa Childers Book Club. I want to let you know about a couple of live streams that we've, or a couple of events we have coming up. One is a live stream on the 26th of July. That's this month on the 26th at 7 p.m. Central. So that's 5 p.m. Pacific, 7 Central, 8 Eastern. I'm going to be talking with John and Corey Cooper of the band Skillet, as well as Jeremy Camp and his wife, Adrian about all of this phenomenon of deconstruction as it's really leading to the contemporary Christian music industry. We are not experts on deconstruction, but we do have uh, sort of a bird's eye view and insight into uh, the contemporary Christian music industry and what specific things about that might be contributing to the, uh, the deconstructions that we're seeing from contemporary Christian music artists. So tune in here on YouTube for that on the 26th at um, 7 p.m. Central. Uh, I also want to let you know next week, if you enjoyed this interview, you're probably going to enjoy next week's interview with my good friend Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity. We have a little teaser for you that I'm going to leave you with today. But thank you so much for watching, for tuning in, for asking such great questions. And stay tuned for this little teaser, and we will see you next time. open Twitter and mm, you oh Twitter oh Twitter and you start looking at what people are saying what drives you what drives you crazy oh it's a lot of things you only want one I think what drives me crazy is the idea that my voice as a black woman because it doesn't go along with culture is usually downplayed talked about made to seem like well that she's just talking white 
But then on the other hand, it's like, well, black people aren't monolithic and black people all think differently. But as soon as you step out of the, the narrative, um, then it's it's white. So I think that drives me crazy where it's like, but I thought that we weren't all the same. So I think that, you know, you want to lift black voices, but y'all won't lift my black voice. And I know a lot of people even say, hey, Monique, everything you just said, you know, you're just letting white people off the hook. I get it. And I get it from both sides. So I get that I'm a Trump supporting blah, blah, blah. Or I, for some reason, when I use the word unity, it triggers people. And so then I got like, I'm a BLM loving dot, dot, dot. And I'm like, you know, neither one of those are actually right. But, um, Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.